Well, if you would, turn to Revelation chapter 2, and if you've just joined us, we're walking through the seven churches in the book of Revelation. When you mention this book, uh, uh, people break out in a sweat, don't they? And we're punting a little bit because we're dealing with some of the easiest sections of the book. That's chapters 2 and 3 that deal with the church, the seven churches And what we see in chapter 1 is an appearance of Christ to John. says, deliver this message, this book. And then in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus writes these seven letters to these seven churches, kind of giving us the state of the church at that time, but I think you can see application throughout the ages. And then starting in chapter 4, you start to see the unfolding of all the end times. But in these seven letters, there's a pattern, isn't there? And we've talked about this. There's Christ gives a greeting and a description of who he is. He then commends the church if there is a commending. Uh, then there's a, a condemnation, or at least I should say a, a little bit of a spanking. You're, these are the areas you need to work on. And then there's a promise at the very end. That's kind of a, a general overview. All of these letters weren't written in a vacuum. And so one of the things we've been doing is going through the historical cultural background because that helps us understand each of these letters. And we'll try to tease that out today as well with Pergamum. I had some great photos. The ancient ruins of Pergamum are fantastic. So go online and look it up later today. Uh, If you you stand at the top of the theater and you look down, I'm I'm telling you, it uh, gives you it's, ooh, oozies. I'm not afraid of heights, but it, it's, it's, it's steep and it is deep. But uh, let me read you. Let's start at chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. This is the briefest description of Jesus in all of the seven letters. He jumps right into the content. I know, this is Christ speaking, where you live. And where do they live? He says, where Satan's throne is. Satan is not omnipresent. And so he has, you know, he can zip around, but he's, he has one location, you know, he's in one location at a time. And Pergamum in the first century, apparently be, according to the text here, is this is where he has home court advantage, um, which is really interesting, isn't it? Uh, kind of wonder where his throne is today, but we won't go there. D.C., no, I don't know. I, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. We'll move along. Yet you continue to cling to and watch the pronouns, my name, and you have not denied your faith in me. I mean, think about that in the context of this is where Satan dwells, and yet you're standing strong. It's like believers standing strong in uh, San Francisco or Hamburg or you know, cities that are very, very liberal. He said, no, you're standing strong even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Who he is, we do not know, except that it says, who was killed in your city where Satan lives. So they've had a previous persecution to the point where people were executed. But I have a few things against you. You have some people, some people there who follow the teaching of Balaam, who instructed Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so they would eat food, sacrifice to idols, and commit sexual immorality. 
In the same way, there are some among you who follow the teachings of the Nicolaitans, or I jokingly call the Nickelodeons, but yes. Therefore, the text says, repent. If not, I will come against you quickly and make war against those people with the sword of my mouth. Goes back, doesn't it, earlier to the scene of the description of Jesus. It also goes back to chapter 1. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's the warning. Now here's the promise. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone will be written a new name that no one can understand except the one who receives it. Now in your first page of your notes, and hopefully you have a set for those high school kids, we're going to have a test afterwards. Um, just joking. But you have the layout there, and I'm not going to read all of that. You can do that on your own, but I do want to highlight a couple things. First of all, historically significant, this was a central city in Asia Minor. Yes, you had Ephesus, which was the mother ship of the seven churches, but Pergamum was a very large city, 180,000. That's almost twice the size of Carmel, ancient ruins. That's enormous. Pergamum was also, as you can see, culturally significant. It was an epicenter for cultural, medical, and religious matters. In fact, it was the Mayo Clinic of the day. It has a huge center just outside the, the Acropolis called the Asclepion, which was to the god of healing, Asclepius, and it was a whole medical treatment center. It's, it's, it's enormous, and it's just right outside the cities. It, it, it boasted of the, one of the largest libraries of the ancient world, over 200,000 copies. And it was, in fact, Pergamum is where parchment was de- uh, invented and developed. So intriguing. But again, religiously, very significant. Not only did it have the Asclepian Center, it had an altar to Zeus, which was extremely prominent, could be seen on all sides of the Acropolis, and you can read about that. We'll get to that in a minute. Some see that as the throne of Satan was the temple to Zeus, the altar, I should say. Uh, By the way, if you are in Berlin, you want to go to the Pergamum Museum because in the Pergamum Museum, uh, that altar has been taken and rebuilt and and it's, it's glorious. It's fabulous. Now, when you go to the Pergamum Museum, make sure you go to the next wing over, which has the entrance to Babylon, the Ishtar Gate. Um... I think I told you that, right? I had a friend who went and didn't go to that side of the building. I'm like, oh, you missed it. But anyway, uh, so when you go to Berlin, go to the Pergamum Museum. And it also had a temple to Augustus. And this is also significant because Pergamum was the first city in this part of the world that had a temple dedicated to the worship of the emperor, the Roman emperor. So obviously, Pergamum is loved by Rome, right? There's a very tight relationship with them. And again, you can read all about that there uh, in, in further detail. Well, let's go back to the opening. We see here this description of Jesus, which is very brief. The bottom of your notes is a quote from uh, one commentator. He says, Reason, effective speech, or God's word is often compared with a sword or a dagger. Makes sense, right? It's going to pierce. Uh, nothing's going to prevent this. Teflon isn't going to stop it. And, and so you have this idea that, you know, this description, again, we see this in chapter one, we saw this beautiful description of Jesus. This is who he is. And then you get to the body. 
And we're, we're told in the text, this line we've seen several times already, Jesus stating, I know. Again, in your notes at the top, it says the last sentence of that first paragraph, the letter is unique in its special emphasis. In every other case, Christ knows the works of the church, but here he knows the situation. Now, let's just make a list. It's in your notes. Don't peek. What? Just look at the text. What does Christ state? What does he know about the church at Pergamum? I'm sorry? He knows where they dwell. Ooh, so sorry. Forgive me. Uh, they're dwelling. And again, where do they dwell? We just highlighted this, but <laughs> yeah, it's Satan's town. You're in Satan's hometown, or at least it's this, this is the uh, center of power for him. Yes. What else do you see that he knows? They've been faithful. Good. What else do we see in the text? Yeah, he knows not he knows certain things that are positive and we're going to see he also knows there's some heretical teaching that there some are buying into and we'll talk about that in a minute. Anything else? What does he say that's positive? He says I know you're dwelling that you are faithful. I'm sorry. They cling to Christ in the midst of what? Yeah. Cling to Christ in the midst of persecution. So in other words, he knows they are suffering. Interesting, huh? So let's unpack this. Let's look at the first of these there in your notes on page two. It says, I know where Satan dwells or his throne room. Now, <clears throat> there are debates among scholars. What is Jesus referring to? Because again, the, these letters weren't written in a vacuum. So what is it that they would have assumed he meant with Satan's throne? And there are three major proponents to this view. And, and first of these is it's an altar to Zeus. Again, that's what I told you, that central um, religious structure that was located on the Acropolis that you could see at all sides. Again, all today that you can see at the ruins are just the base because the altar's been moved to Berlin. But uh, for some... It's this, and, and, and the reason being is, and I wish I had my PowerPoint, uh, I was going to show you some of the reliefs, and this is there in the notes, have these giants that are inscrawled and are carved, and it shows them with serpent's tails. And so some argue, well, that was the depiction of Satan, and it's directly linked. Possible. Others have argued, no, 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 it was the Asclepian Center, which was so unique in the ancient world, because it was to, again, as you see in your notes, to Asclepius Soter, which means Savior. And so the God was depicted, and this is interesting, as a serpent. If I were to show you a coin of Pergamum, which I had a picture of, uh, but if you look it up, it is a serpent <clears throat> coming out of a basket. And so some argue this is what Jesus is referring to and others argue, no, 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 it was the temple to Augustus and to Rome, um, this worship of the emperor, because the emperor was seen as the false god. He was the one who was the greatest threat to the church in the first century. And so these are the three arguments, the, the altar of Zeus, 
Soter, uh, the Asclepian Center, or it's the temple to Augustus. Whether it's something tangible in this way or it's just figurative, this is the location that, that Jesus subscribes that is there, that this is where Satan's throne is. That is such a good point because that leads us to the second thing that's there in your notes, and that is that they are faithful, even in the midst of it. And what do they cling to? The Lord's name. I love that. One scholar writes, the name connotes the essence of the person. And in the Septuagint, LXX, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there's that direct connection, as here often speaks of the person's basic characteristic. They are claiming the person of Christ, even in the midst of persecution. I, uh, we have some Coptic Egyptian friends who live next door to us, and after, if you remember in the news, a bunch of the Coptic Christians were beheaded by ISIS, and I, I said to Ben, I said, I'm so sorry to, to see what's happening. He goes, don't you say to me you're sorry. He said, we consider it a great privilege to stand for Christ. I was like, thank you. I needed that scolding. <clears throat> and in the midst of, you know, again, uh, whether Satan's lair, wherever his lair is, we, we still feel the effects of Satan and those that follow him. And that's, that's clear across this planet. And this group is holding fast. And again, that's there in your notes. They're, they're not bending and they're holding fast to the name of the Lord. They're not going to bend. And we know that they're undergoing persecution because as we see here in the text in verse 13, you have someone called Antipas who kind of led the charge. And that, that tells us that the current persecution they are undergoing is not the first. They've already endured a first wave. Now this is a second wave that they are encountering. If <clears throat> that's the case, it could be that we're dealing with Domitian who persecuted the church. The first persecution would have been Nero. But regardless, they're undergoing persecution. And yet, they're standing fast collectively. But we do have a problem here, don't we? Even when you start to pull out your fingernails, you're going to find those who say, eh, maybe not. Maybe I don't want to do this. And so we do have some Areas that they need to address. And as you see there in the text, go back to verse 14 and let's look at this. <clears throat> the Lord says, I have a few things against you. He said, there are those who follow the teaching of Balaam. And then later in verse 15, you follow the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That term, the cognate is same as we see in verse 13, you continue to cling to my name. You follow my name. So collectively, the church is following Christ, but we have those that are saying, no, no, I need to compromise. <laughs> You're not pulling out my fingernails. And so they're toying, they're following these other teachings. And we see here the teaching of Balaam. You remember Balaam, yes? Tell me who Balaam is. What do we know about Balaam? Yes, give me somebody, get, let someone else, Eugene. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> problems with donkeys. Yes. He was told to curse Israel, right, through Balak, and it's there in your notes in Numbers 22 through 24. 
He's listed with the kings of Midian, and Israel will eventually take him down with a sword. The angel of the Lord threatens to take him down too, by the way, with a sword. And, and so <clears throat> we're told in the text here, look at Revelation, notice what it says, that he caused, well, he put a stumbling block so they would eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. Neither are stated in the, explicitly in the book of Numbers. We don't see it. So you go, oh, here we have an error. No, no, look at your notes. It seems to indicate that this is the, what he was enticing the Israelites with. The text doesn't tell us in Numbers. Here we see that it's explicit. This is what Balaam was trying to do. The connection is key here. Immorality and meat offered up to idols, which is a form of idolatry. And in that paragraph, it starts with throughout Scripture, eating sacrificial meat was often associated with sexual promiscuity. I mean, think about where do we see the connection with immorality and eating meat offered up to idols in the New Testament? We see it at a council, Acts 15, right? The church is warned, for Gentiles are warned. These are the things that you won't do. And, and so uh, it appears, and as you can see there in your notes, meat that was offered up to sacrifice, this becomes an issue in 1 Corinthians as well, that you need to avoid this. Um, because it's connected with the religious r rituals. He's not calling for us to be vegetarians. The issue is that this is what's been offered to idols, and you are, in essence, participating in the cultic practice. And so, Jesus states, in keeping with that kind of teaching, you are embracing this. He then gives us another group called the Nicolaitans, and you go, who is this? And this is there in verse 15. And I, I, as I mentioned there in your notes under verse 15, I think you're, yes, they're two distinct entities, but it would seem that they both are seen as a single movement, if this makes sense. Because, as I mentioned there in your notes, quoting from Osborne, in the same way Balaam led the Israelites astray, by the way, his name means he who consumes the people. And Nicolaitans is he who overcomes the people. In the same way Balaam led the Israelites astray, these false teachers in Pergamum, the Nicolaitans, are subverting the believers. And so, yes, you have a large swatch of the church that's holding fast in the midst of where they dwell, but you do have a group who are on the verge of, of, well, they are. They've embraced these false teachings. He says, it's got to stop. We don't, I don't know of any scholar who truly knows who they are. We don't, there's not enough. It, it's kind of like listening to the phone conversation. You can piece some things together, but we don't know all that was said and who they really are. Um, what we can see, though, is that they're in keeping with the type of thing that you see with Balaam. So it appears to be a group who has compromised its culture or the truth with its culture, that they have um, uh, taken a route that hopefully th that they can play both sides and not be persecuted. Uh, and if 
ultimately compromise their morals as we see. So, but you're right. The text is not, I think the greatest danger for the church is when it takes on its culture. And uh, I've said that 1 Corinthians should have been retitled 1st USA <laughs> because many of the problems of Corinth are the same issues that we face, immorality, sexual deviance. Um, so, and sadly, that's crept into the church. And, it, and it's very easy for, I think, the gospel to be repackaged um, so it can appear palatable to the, the world we live in. Rudolf Boltmann was the pastor of the church at Marburg in the 50s. And he eventually stated, there's nothing we can know historically about this Jesus of Nazareth. And yet he had a packed house every Sunday. People standing to waiting to get in. And what Boltmann was trying to do was to make the gospel palatable to his world that he lived in that was denying the supernatural, etc., and, and that leads us, we'll get to the application in a minute, but I, I think that's what we're dealing with. But Larry, you had a comment. It really ties to what you're saying is that both of these related to the teachings of this. So it's not just an idolatrous action, but there are, there's theology, there is stuff going on within the church, potentially, that's false teaching. You use that term several times here. So there's the, the, theology matters. We have to be oh, careful. yeah. Theology matters. I hope you heard that, right? When we're preaching to the choir here, that's why we're here studying the Word. Um, notice the, the promises. Let me give you those two real fast. He says that I will give you some of the hidden manna. And the, of course, we all know what manna is from the Old Testament. And uh, I had a great cartoon thing I was going to show you. These people are picking up the manna and eating it. And this bird flies over and Moses goes, I don't think that's manna. <laughs> we'll leave that at that. So... <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, what in the world are we talking about here? And, and there's several views, and they're laid there out in your notes. Some argue it's similar to how the manna was put in a jar and hidden in the ark. You'll be hidden with Christ in the end times. Other argue, no, you're hidden in the person of Christ because he's the bread of life, the manna for us today. There's that idea. And others argue, no, we're just dealing with spiritual food, which is hidden from the unsaved and is available to those that have proclaimed Christ. In many, in many ways, none of these views are mutually exclusive. And as you can see on the top of page four, the hidden manna while revealed in Christ is ultimately spiritual food that awaits those who are faithful. It's not available to those who embrace the teachings of uh, Balaam and so forth. And so that's the first promise. The second promise is that your name is put on a stone. And this is really interesting as well. Again, these weren't written in a vacuum. So some would argue what this is, is that in the cult of Asclepius, when you were healed, you were given a stone with a new name on it. And that could be the connection. Others talk about it being with the gladiators or an amulet that's given with a secret name as protection and you can read all of these that are in here. Um, none of them are concrete, and scholars debate all of those. But the 
paragraph that's below it, since the believers already know the name of Christ and that his name is given to the believers, it would seem that the new name symbolizes the individual's entry into a new life status or personality. In other words, I would argue this new name is that you are his and and you will be with him for all eternity. This is the promise that's being given There's a connection with Isaiah 62 and Isaiah 65. And if you have time this week, some of you students are using this as a a class. I would encourage you to to explore the the parallels between Isaiah 62 and 65 with this text. And, And the context of Isaiah 62 and 65 is that the Israelites need to remain faithful even when the Israelites are offering up sacrifices to idols. You are to be faithful, and you will be given a new name, Isaiah 65 says. And that's kind of the context here, isn't it? And not only is the cultural background of these letters important, but so is the Old Testament. You stab Revelation with a knife, it will bleed Old Testament. It's understood that you're going to comprehend and bring that to the text. Well, let me give you three things to walk away with today. This wasn't just a a discourse on the text and historical background. Let me give you three things, and we've already highlighted these, a couple of them. The church is in grave danger when she is concerned with accommodating or embracing her culture. We cannot compromise the gospel. It must be guarded at all cost. And this is the danger in in any age, isn't it? I mean, Satan would love nothing more. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. If he could undermine what God has said, even adding a little bit to it, we've muddied the waters and and created absolute havoc. And so it shouldn't surprise us that he's going to go after the church, big C, and, and attempt to undermine it and the danger that is there. We've got time. Turn to Romans 12. You know the text, but I want you to see this. Paul spends the first 11 chapters dealing with doctrine. And when he gets to chapter 12, he begins to talk about duty. In 12.2, he says, Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. You will not live a successful Christian life if you're just sitting on your laurels waiting for some Bible verse to pop in. No, 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 no. Or God to intervene. Uh, God will intervene. God will bring Scripture to mind, that which has been committed to memory. But what he's looking for is being on the offense. And it starts in the mind so that we may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. So it starts with renewing the mind with the Word of God. And so to the church, as we've seen here at Pergamum, located in a glorious, prestigious town, but one that is known for its evil, the church, unfortunately, some within the church are starting to embrace that which is around them. And it's a reminder to us not to do that. Secondly, closely tied with this, is doctrinal fidelity and religious conduct conduct go hand in hand. We need a clear understanding of the Lord's holiness and of our own depravity. At the end of the day, one's morals are no higher than his or her gods. Right? Whom do you worship? (laughs) Yourself or others? 
And then third, the Lord is intimately involved in our lives. Don't you love it that the Lord said, he didn't say, I've heard about you, O church at Pergamum. He said, no, I know about you. I know your strengths. I know your struggles. I think I mentioned this the first time we, we delve into this study. What kind of letter would Jesus write to your church? I know the following, boom, boom, but we got this. The Lord is intimately involved in our lives. I wrote, even though we face suffering and live in a pluralistic society, we can rest in knowing that the Lord will preserve his people and honor his word. It's all about his glory, his name. And that is why this church, look at it again, It says, I applaud you because you continue to cling to my name. No one at the moment is being imprisoned in our country. They are in Canada (laughs) for the gospel. However, I would argue the church is losing battlegrounds right and left. May we not lose sight of the Lord's name. May we cling strongly to it and proclaim it. May we not compromise it. And even when Satan is dwelling in their midst and he has his full arsenal right there, they stand fast. Why? Because they have the privilege of testifying. Because there will be a day when every knee will bow before that name, right? And so I leave you with Jude for today as you go forth and many of you are going to work now to the one who's able to keep you from falling and to cause you to stand rejoicing without blemish before his glorious presence and the church of Jude or the this letter that Jude is writing to is is struggling they're being persecuted they've got false teachers in their midst in fact they're inside the camp he says to the only god our savior through Jesus Christ our lord his name This one be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now, and for all eternity. Amen. 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 Well, Thomas, you want me to close in prayer? Let's do. Father, we come to you and just thank you for your word. Thank you that, Lord, you are there walking alongside as you stood among those lampstands In the first century, you stand in our midst. And Lord, it's easy to grow weary or to grow deeply concerned when Satan just seems to be winning. His minions seem to grow ever stronger. Justice, fairness, rightness, morality seem to be fading thoughts of a glorious day gone by. And yet... What an opportunity to exalt your name, to stand fast, to proclaim the gospel, and to learn more and more of what it means to suffer for you and to know the the deep truths of your word. Thank you. Thank you for these men. Guide them today. Go before them. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.